Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. My name is Jeffrey Zakarian, and you're listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian from iHeartRadio. In Four Courses, I'll be taking you along for the ride while I talk with the top talent of our time. In each conversation, I focus on four different areas from my guest's life and career. And during those four courses, I'm going to dig deep and uncover new insights and inspirations that we can all use to fuel ourselves to push forward. My guest for this episode is a world-renowned chef. He built his career working for some of the oldest and best restaurants in France. And today, his flagship restaurant in New York City ranks as one of the best in the world. Without further delay, let's get into my conversation with Eric Repair. Hey, Jeffrey. How you doing? For our first course, I wanted to ask Eric what parts of his childhood drew him into the kitchen. He spent his early life gathering fresh fruits and vegetables from local markets in a part of the world most of us can only dream of vacationing. I was born in Antibes, and then my parents live in um, next to Cannes, and then to Saint-Tropez, and so I was in the French Riviera for about nine years. Yeah. So, when you think of like those times, and when you visit back there, what smell or memory of smell or food, when you walked into your house, grabbed you? What do you remember walking into your house now that once in a while you walk by another restaurant, you're like you know that smells sort of like what was cooking in my house or what we did all the time. What I remember the most, it's the smell of the basil. The basil. Because 
over there is so vibrant. You you can be like 50 yards from the market and and from the stand, and you can smell the basil or the sweetness of the melons or, or something like that. If at home um, I have basil from the garden, or I have some melons that I never put in a fridge, by the way, so they don't lose their uh, flavor, then it reminds me the market. So how old were you about then when you realized that that smell was like intoxicating? I was very young. I was maybe four, five years old because my grandmother was taking me to the market every day. You know, like in France, that generation was going to buy the bread every morning and whatever they needed for the day. And the day after, they were going back to the market again and visiting the butcher and stopping at the vegetable stand and some days going to the fishery and so on. So it was, you know, they took... But it takes an hour or two to do that every day. I mean, it takes time and you have to do it, but you get the ability. First of all, I, I believe that buying more often, you spend less because you get much smarter and you have an inventory in your head about what you have. So you don't, you're not buying, you know what, I'll just get it anyways in case I need it. You don't do that. That's not in case I need it. <laughs> no. You buy what's on sale or what's fresh or what's in season and you buy a lot of it and you eat that for three or four days. Yes. It's fantastic because... You are so connected with the season just by visiting the market, just by talking to the people who sell their products. And sometimes we talk about seasons like the spring and the summer and the fall. But the beginning of the spring is very different than the middle of the spring or the end of the spring. So we, we were connected to the season just by doing that. We knew exactly when was the best tomatoes of the year or the best strawberries uh, or the cherries when the season was starting and so on. I grew a vegetable garden this past year and never had done one for a long time. And it was so much work. And I had forgotten, once zucchini comes, man, you're going to be eating zucchini a lot because it all yes. comes at once. You just, you, <laughs> yes, you, it's you, the same for the salads, right? This year I planted some salads. And what I forgot is that all the salads comes at the same time. <laughs> and so you get the same... Uh, uh, romaine or the same uh, lettuce in huge quantities. What I like about it is that we eat a lot of it because it tastes delicious, but we are also connecting with the neighborhood because we give them some salads and they're happy and they give us there something else and so on. There you go. And that's what it's all about. So, so your grandmother went to the market. Did your mom, Monique, right? Your mom is Monique, right? Yeah, my mother was, uh, her name is still Monique, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and did she go to the market too, or was she just doing preparation and, your, and her mother helping you buy and, and all that sort of stuff? So my mother was going to the market as well, but not the way my grandmothers were going to the market. So I, I had an Italian grandmother and a Provencal grandmother, and they were going there on a daily basis, and it was like soul food from their region, northern Italy and the region of, of Provence near Avignon. And my mother was going to the market, but she was buying slightly differently. And she was very inspired by nouvelle cuisine and by what chefs like Paul Bocuse and Michel Gerard and, and all yeah. the generation were doing. And she was cooking for us very elaborate food. So it was slightly different in terms of um, preparation and shopping. However, for me, it was a blessing because I was exposed to soul food and I was exposed at the same time to something that it was very refined. And I didn't know that I was privileged. I thought every kid in the world was eating exactly like me. <laughs> and so did it really hit you like you wanted to do something in the food world or did you have college on, mind, on your mind or did you want to you know, learn a trade? 
Well, I was obsessed with eating because I was so spoiled and, and my experience were so powerful. And I was always trying to get inside the kitchen, but nobody let me because they claim I would trash the kitchen or leave some disaster there. But I was very young. I was five, six, seven years old, obsessed with the kitchen. Not necessarily to really work hard in that kitchen. I wanted just to play a little bit, mm -hmm. but I wanted to eat well. And that's why I was there. And then when I became older, instead of studying in high school, I was reading cookbooks. And I remember Paul Bocuse had uh, La Cuisine du Marché and, and so mm. on. And I was reading recipes. Therefore, I had bad grades, right? And because I had bad grades, at one point, they called my mother and said, your son is really, really bad in school. He has to find what they call in France a vocational college. Yeah. And I was like, yep, I'm going to culinary school. That's what I want to do. I want to cook and I want to eat well. And, and uh, that was I had no, no idea how hard it would be to go to a culinary school and study because, as you know, we are not born with knife skills and, and, <laughs> and all those, those important <laughs> details, right? Yes, but you're, you're, were you in Andorra at this time or were you still in the south of France? I was living in, in the Principality of Andorra, but the school was in Perpignan, which is the south of France, which was about three hours by car from where I was living. So I was in that school and they had a reputation of being tough. All the teachers were coming from the, the yacht Le France. Mm -hmm. And that boat was very iconic in the 70s and 80s. And those guys were very well trained and very tough. So they were training the cooks in, in, a, in a school with a lot of rigor, which is, of course, beneficial at the end, right? And they knew their craft very well. I had very good teachers. But I was not the best cook in a class. There was a lot of kids that were really excelling. I was doing a good job. I was really bored in culinary school because my parents were taking me to the best restaurants in France, and I was exposed to great cuisine. And then... In culinary school, we were learning the basics, which is normal, obviously. Yep. And so the basics are mayonnaise and vinaigrette and sauce bechamel and, and yep. things like that. And I was like, oh my God, this is so boring. So I was not that excited, but I was cooking pretty well. So then they decided that I was a great waiter because the first year in culinary school, you had to be a waiter a little bit for part of the week and in the kitchen yep. for the, the second yeah, part of the week. Yeah, you have to learn about it's a business. You have to learn the business. So they tried to push me to become a waiter and I didn't want to do that. And a big accident happened at the end of the year just before they took their decision. I basically dumped on top of a general from the French army a tray of cocktails. Oh my gosh. And, and then it was not enough. I had to go back to the table because the teacher told me I had to go back. And then I served the table and uh, when it was time to serve his wife, the tray tilted and the glass fell on the neck of his wife. And that was not over again. They told me to go back to the bar and come back. So I, I, I came back and I slid on the ice cube that was on the floor and the tray went back on the table. <laughs> and I was sent forever in the kitchen uh, for the second year. And in between, they sent me in, a, in training to work in a very tough kitchen to make sure that I had the passion and the fire for cooking, which I had. And I started to really enjoy being in, in those kitchen. And then I graduated and uh, moved to Paris. I'm 
Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. In our second course, I had to understand how Eric's career as a chef took off when he arrived in Paris. Because unlike most people straight out of culinary school, Eric cut his teeth at one of the most renowned restaurants in France, La Tour d'Ajon. In fact, the institution celebrated its 400th anniversary the very year Eric started. They were basically the first restaurant that introduced the fork in France because the king didn't want to eat with his fingers anymore. And they created a fork and uh, uh, he was going there. Wow. It was the restaurant of the king. I never knew that. That's incredible. So 400 years old, so 2,600 something. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. During the French Revolution, because it was a sign of royalty, they basically burned the restaurant and destroyed it, but they rebuilt it again on top of the ashes of the old restaurant. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, the name changed. From La Tour d'Argent, it became Café Anglais. So Tour d'Argent, so... What Tour d'Argent is known for, other than its incredible cellar, it's like located on top of, like I think it looks over Notre Dame, I think. Of, I, I haven't been there in a long time. And they have the, uh, the famous duck à l'orange, or the, the duck per se, correct? Which is yes. a giant duck that gets smashed. Did you do that? Did you learn that process? Or were you there long enough to go through the entire stations? 
Yes, I was. I was at, at Tour d'Argent. So I started when I was 17 years old. I was the youngest cook in the kitchen. Not the most brilliant one, I have to tell you, because coming from culinary school, going to a, a brigade like that is a, definitely a cultural change and, and a challenge. But I did all the stations except pastry because they put me in pastry and on afternoon while everybody was away I, I ate 25 raspberry <laughs> tartelettes and I didn't know they were counting them and they kicked me out of the pastry I never went back but I did all oh the stations from, from the fish station to the duck station yeah don't they have a number system I, I remember back then they had how many ducks they sold uh, yes. and then they had like a prize I believe what, at one point not too many years ago that there was the one millionth duck or something like that Yes, they reached the one million. So each time that someone eats a duck, they give him a postcard with a number. I have to tell you, don't believe that story because I burned so many ducks and they didn't issue numbers for them. <laughs> one day I went for uh, the family meal and when I came back, it was flames coming out of the hood. It was 24 ducks burning in the oven. My God. I mean, duck, people don't understand, duck is a, a, a dangerous animal. I mean, there's so much fat on them. They're very, you got to really understand how to cook a duck. Oh, yes, it's for e sure. It's easy to overcook it, but uh, a properly cooked duck, so the leg and the thigh is almost impossible. Probably, if you haven't been to La, La Tour de Jean, I would put it on anybody's bucket list. I don't care how many stars it has now. It is just such a spectacular place to go, and it's just... It's like you feel like the movie Ratatouille, you know, that when they sit down and you look it over the Paris, that's what it's like. It's that magical. It really is. Yes. It's one of the most dining rooms in the world, actually. I mean, you have view of uh, Notre Dame de Paris. It feels like it's, it's in a dining room, basically, made of gigantic windows. And it's amazing. On one side, you see the La Seine, which is the river, and, and Paris and Notre Dame. And on the other side, you have those kind of what they call duck theaters, which are like small areas that look like a mini theater where the waiters are cutting the ducks and they are preparing the ducks and making the sauce with the press and so on. I mean, it's, it's one of those very unique experiences. And then they have one of the most beautiful wine cellars in the world. I mean, it's a, it, I was very young when I saw it and I, I understood it. I would love to go back again and just taking it as someone who just wants the experience. And I remember, what I remember was going up to the window and seeing the barges going by all lit up and people were having dinner on the barges as they were going down the Seine. I'm like, this is just magnificent. And that was like, I thought it was like, wow, it was a show. They were just doing it. No, that's how it's every day like that. It's just, it's a lifestyle. Back then, I think it was three stars. Uh, yes, if I'm not correct. Yes, yeah. it was. So you went star. from you know culinary school to a couple places and three stars. That's a big leap. A lot of people work a long, long time before they get recruited for a three star restaurant. Yes, but in my mind, there was no other way. I wanted to work in a three star restaurant. I didn't want to work in anything else. So when I graduated, I went to buy the Michelin Guide, and it was. 18 restaurants in France that had three stars. And I sent, I wrote by hand, of course, uh, at the time was no computers. I, I wrote 18 letters saying, hey, I'm Eric Repair. I just graduated, blah, blah, blah. I'm 17 years old. I want to work in your kitchen. And nobody answered. And, <laughs> and finally, a month and a half later, I received a call and it was a sous-chef from La Tour d'Argent who said, are you repair? And I said, yes, I am repair. Well, we got your letter and uh, we have a job for you. And I said, when, yeah, great. Okay, when can I start? And it was a Friday afternoon. And I remember because I was coming back from um, 
foraging in a forest for a, a porcini. And uh, the guy said, well, I need you on Monday. So <laughs> in between uh, Friday afternoon and Monday, we were able to find an airline ticket. I made my suitcase and I was in Paris in a subway on Monday morning on my way to La Tour d'Argent. I just hearing that, I get chills because... When you get to the door, you know, the hallway to the kitchen is always fluorescent light. It's not pretty. It's always, the feeling is like your out of body feeling. It's like, where am I? What's that? It's so foreign. You're not in any comfort zone whatsoever. And you're like, at the same time, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yes. It was amazing and fascinating, but I was so scared because yeah. I was pretty protected in my lifestyle because Andorra is a very small country. Everybody's happy. I have never seen professional kitchens. It was all about reading in books and, and dreaming about it and so on. And suddenly you are in that kitchen with 30 or 40 cooks. And when I walk in that kitchen, they were already like in full speed. It was eight o'clock in the morning, but the stocks were boiling and the guys were working and running and so on. And, and actually I, I was very surprised. Nobody was my age. They were all like... 25, 30 years old, and they look at me like I was uh, uh, someone coming from a UFO. And uh, <laughs> it was very intimidating. But I mean, after a couple of days, I mean, was it just like you're like, oh my God, this it pinch me because you know, you're at some place that's extraordinary. Yes, I was extremely uh, happy and challenged at the same time because when you come out of a culinary school, as much as you believe that with your graduation, you are a great cook. When you work in those restaurants, you realize you know so little and you make so many mistakes and so on and you, the challenges are enormous. It was a very intense experience for me, but I, I have no regret at all. I will do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, I, so what's the first station that you worked? Where did they put you first? Obviously, you didn't work a station. And then what was the first time when someone noticed that you were really very capable and they like said, okay, let's, you know, the, the word got around that you knew what you were doing. So La Tour d'Argent is specialized in ducks. However, they put me in a fish station. Aha. And the fish station, it was not so easy. I mean, you had to uh, take care of yourself of filleting your fish and taking care of the shellfish and making your sauce and garnishes and so on. So I was helping the main chef in that station and I had a lot to learn. I mean, from making an Hollandaise with 32 yolks that became scrambled eggs after, uh, on my first day after an hour in that kitchen to cutting my finger, slicing shallots again on the first day. It was, the beginning was a bit rough, but after, I would say, three or four months, finally they came to me and they said, you know, we believe now, now it's time for you to move to the next station. And that was a big deal. When they were moving you, it was like, a very big compliment. You were accomplished in one station, you could go to the next and learn something else, and then you were moving again and again and again. So the fish station, so you're at the fish station. Is there anything, not knowing fish like you know it now, was there anything there that stood out, knowing it, what it was then as being exemplary, since they weren't known for fish? Yeah, I thought the, the way they were preparing fish was extremely uh, light and very original. Actually, the chef Dominique Boucher at the time was trying to change a little bit the reputation of La Tour d'Argent and, and get away from the ducks and have a reputation for a broader cuisine. So he was really 
putting a lot of effort into the fish station, which was my luck because we were using a lot of different techniques. It was a, a blessing because I really, really started my love for cooking fish in, in there. It seems like, like looking back at your career, like Tour de Jean could have been the place that really cemented fish for you, even though it's not known for fish. I mean, I never ate fish at Tour de Jean. No, because nobody, I mean, everybody eats the duck. However, again, the fish was really delicious and I really started to enjoy very much cooking fish because when you cook meat, and I love, I, I don't have a preference in between meat and fish or vegetables. When I cook, I cook with my heart and with my knowledge yeah. and, and so on and my instinct. But when you cook meat, it's a very sensual way of cooking, right? But when you cook fish, it's a very sensual way, but also it's a very technical way. And I love the fact that you have to be so focused because 10 seconds could be the biggest mistake and the fish becomes overcooked and he has no flavor and so on. The meat is much more forgiven. You cook the meat an extra minute, you don't have consequences. For the fish, <laughs> you have to be so cautious and you have to be so cautious also with whatever goes in the plate because the fish is so delicate that any ingredient could overwhelm the qualities of that filet of fish in a plate. So I learned that from La Tour d'Argent and moving to Robuchon and to other restaurants. I learned that respect for the techniques and for the ingredients and especially for cooking fish. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. For our third course, I wasn't just going to let Eric glass over the time working with world-class chef Jean Robuchon at his restaurant, Jamin. Robuchon ran one of the strictest kitchens in the business, and I wanted to know how these extremely high standards shaped Eric's style as a chef. Tell me about Jamin. I mean, I remember eating at Jamin, and then yeah. I remember the next time I had his, his cuisine was at L'Atelier, and he did a very big deal. Uh, but tell me about the working at Jamin. Like, what, you were assistant uh, chef de partie, which is a big deal. Yes, so he hired me um, as demi-chef de partie, so half-chef de partie, which is like, it's a pretty good title. I mean, chef de partie means you're responsible for a station, and I was actually in garde-manger, which is the cold appetizer section, and I was in charge of garde-manger with him. Joël Robuchon at Jamais was uh, doing miracles every day, and uh, he's the most rigorous, knowledgeable precise and demanding chef that I have ever seen in the world to this day. He's no longer with us, but he was considered God at the time. And his, his entire career, he was extremely respected for the fact that he was, probably with Frédéric Girardet in Switzerland, considered the best chef of the planet. So I walk in Jamin and I come, I'm coming from La Tour d'Argent. We are about 30 cooks in La Tour d'Argent. We do 100 and something covers a night. I go at Robuchon. We are about 30 cooks and we do 40 covers. And everybody starts at 6 o'clock in the morning as a break of half hour in the afternoon, and we end up at midnight at the earliest, or sometimes one or two o'clock in the morning, and that is five days a week. So you basically have four hours to go to your house, take a shower, have breakfast, brush your teeth, put some clothes, come back. So tell me why. Tell me what you saw that was remarkable that stayed with you. Robuchon was caring so much about the attention to the detail, and he was the first, and I think the only chef that I know, who was able to bring the precision and the aesthetic of the cuisine that they do in competitions. But yep. usually that cuisine in competition is not really delicious. Right. It's, it looks beautiful and it takes three days to make. So three days later, your fish is fishy, obviously. Yeah. But Robuchon was able to bring that that exercise of making competitions and, and, and because he, wo he won all of them and he was bringing that in the plate and it was done in a timely manner for the clients and everything was super fresh. We had the best ingredients and so on. So it was basically mission impossible. You were going to Robuchon knowing that you will not be capable to make him happy and to meet the standards. However, you will try to get as close as you can, and it will take you hours and hours and hours of work to try, and at the same time, you knew he will never be happy. Just amazing. So I, rem I remember distinctly the ravioli, the langoustine. Oh, yes. This is amazing, Jeffrey. That's yeah. ravioli of langoustine. You know, we were making the ravioli when you were ordering, 
So no. you were saying, I want a, uh, an order of uh, ravioli, which was on the bed of cabbage with uh, foie gras truffle sauce, right? Mm -hmm. You had some guy running with some langoustines, going to the pasta machine, making the dough, putting the langoustines in it, poaching the langoustines in a broth. And while someone was doing all that, we were preparing the cabbage and we were preparing the foie gras truffle sauce. Oh my sauce. God. <laughs> oh my God. That was the way Robuchon was cooking for his clients. So imagine, we were, yes, 30 cooks for 40 covers, but you were ordering one order of langoustine and you had three or four guys involved for 15 minutes just for you. And then he was touching the ravioli with his finger and sometimes the langoustines wouldn't be as firm as he likes. So we, we would have to redo the dish. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was an interesting time. How long did you stay there? So I stayed one year and then... I was struggling because it was really, really challenging. And uh, I was called to go to do my military duties because it was mandatory at the time in France. Yep. So I went to see him and I told him that I had to leave because I was uh, called. And he said, don't worry about it. I'm going to send you to the Elysee. You will cook for the president of France, but you're staying with me for now. And <laughs> I, Wow, I that's said, very flattering. It was very flattering, but I said, no, I cannot do that because I really have to go back to the south of France. So anyway, he let me go. And on my last day of my military duties, I thought it was a joke. I received a call at the office of the sergeant and the sergeant said, you have a call, is Joël Robuchon on the phone? And I was like, yes, yeah, sure, of course. And I grabbed the phone and it's him. And he says to me, he says, ah, I hear that you're finishing your duties and so on. I have a position for you. Would you like to come back at Jamais and you will be the chef poissonnier in charge of the fish station? And I said to him, thank you so much. I have to think about it. And he said to me, of course, you have 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and you can imagine uh, in 30 seconds, how many things goes in your head. And of course, I had to say yes, I had no choice. So therefore, I was back with him again for two more years in a fish station. So tell me how he cooked fish back then. How did he use his poêle? What did he do both? Did he roast poêle, arrosé? What did he do? So he, he was identifying the qualities of the fish. In his mind, he knew that some fish are better when they are poached or steamed. Some fish are better when they are sauté and the skin is crispy. Some fish needs to be baked and whole and then potentially uh, of the bone and so on. Uh, we were using all those different techniques. We had about five or six different recipes of fish on the menu as main course. They had, of course, different sauce and different techniques and different garnishes that were all meant to elevate the qualities of the fish. And that is what I learned with him before I came to America. It's how to elevate the qualities of every individual shellfish and, and fish that we are uh, cooking. So, I mean, you came to the United States in 89. What the hell was on your mind? That must have been just like a revolution. I remember 89. It was, it was crazy. New York City was crazy. So 89, I was in Washington, D.C., so it was not at the crazy at all because yeah. the politicians and lawyers are pretty boring at night. However, I was with Jean-Louis Paladin. Great guy, and, great chef. And Jean-Louis Paladin was an extremely creative chef. He was kind of a hippie, gypsy, crazy, fun, creative guy. And I learned so much from him because he said to me, he said, look, you come from Robichon Kitchen and he, he made you a great technician, but basically... You cannot create anything. You can only duplicate. 
So he said, I'm going to take care of, of you and I'm going to make you creative. You have to open your mind. So Jean-Louis was on a mission to make me creative with all the techniques that I, I had accumulated great. from La Tour like d'Argent. That's like a deadly assassin, right? You have, it's yeah. like knowing judo and carrying an M16. <laughs> so anyway, if I can make a comparison is, or an analogy, it's like coming from Catholic school and going to Woodstock directly. <laughs> Anyway, I was having fun in the kitchen with Jean-Louis Paladin, but I didn't want to stay in Washington. I was very young and I was very attracted by New York because it was a lot of things happening in New York in every industry and and the city is always very active as as we know. So I wanted to party as well. So I came to the city and worked for uh, David Boulet in 1989. I worked with him for eight or nine months and then Gilbert Lecoz offered me the position of being his chef de cuisine, and I came to Le Bernardin. How did he know about you? Did he know that you worked at Robichon? Did he have a hotline into all these new guys coming uh, from France? So Gilbert Lecoz wanted to replace Eberard Muller, who opened Le Bernardin with him in 1986. So it yeah. was 1991. And he called Jean-Louis Paladin in Washington. They were good friends. And Jean-Louis said, I had this kid in my kitchen, now he's at Boulet, but I think he can do the job try to get in touch with him and we will see if he can go to Le Bernardin and become the chef. I started actually June 11 at 7.40 a.m. of 1991. And I remember because I look at my watch, the energy was very strange. I felt it was something very special. My sixth sense said, this restaurant is going to be very important for you. Do not forget when you are arriving here, it's wow. important. And, and wow. I never, never forgot. So you have the technician, then you had the hippie, and now you have Gilbert. Well, where, where does he stand? Where does he lie? So Gilbert knows how to cook fish, and his fish is delicious. And I'm learning from him, but I, I have learned already a lot from my previous chefs and mentors. And I master pretty well all the techniques that are used at Le Bernardin. So Gilbert basically says to me, look, I want you to be the chef here. You're going to be in charge of managing the team. For me, it's something very new because until then, I was managing very small teams, like two guys with me in my station. Suddenly, I'm, I'm basically in charge of a kitchen of 45 cooks or something like that at the time. It's something that was completely new. And Gilbert was very kind and very patient and very supportive. And he let me make all the mistakes always, always defended me and, and stood up for me, knowing that I was wrong anyway. He mentored me like that, and it, it was my luck, and I worked with him for three full years until he passed away in 1994. Very sad day, I remember that. How did you reconcile with that, where you then became the person? How do you replace someone that's such a dynamic person? What did you think to yourself at that time, if you can remember? It was very difficult, but uh, Maggie Lecoz called me a few days later and she said, look, my brother always told me that he trusted you to run his kitchen and I would like for you to, to now run the kitchen on your own and I don't want to create a museum to the memory of my brother. I want you to continue to create and find your style and your voice and I'm going to support you and we are going to keep Le Bernardin open and we are going to make it better than ever. Wow, what a remarkable lady to see that. That's a big leap. But obviously, she's a very smart lady because look what happened. Top 50 in the world. And 
you've taken it from that pressure-laden restaurant in Paris and you moved through the ranks and you just came up with your own style. It actually happened the way it was actually supposed to happen. Yeah, sometimes, you know, destiny is full of mystery, right? God. <laughs> but uh, I am very grateful to be at Le Bernardin. I'm having fun. Of course, we have been challenged throughout the years in between 9-11 and the Great Recession and lately the COVID and so on. But I, I still have tremendous joy in being in Le Bernardin, working with the team, and it's extremely motivating, rewarding. Of course, the ultimate goal is to create an experience and a delicious meal to our clients, and that makes me happy. But you also, you've given that, you've let your staff shine. I think you've let what Maggie do to you, to your other people with Aldo, and it's such a fun place to be, and it's, you've made it very unpretentious, I must say. And that's, you feel... I think I, you said you were grateful. You feel the gratitude. You really do. Your staff loves you, and you feel the gratitude they have for what, they, what they're doing. They're able to have this incredible experience and, and work there. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I, I really try to create an experience that is warm and friendly, and restaurants, fine dining or not, should be always very welcoming, and it should be always, we are here to please, right? I mean... They don't come to Le Bernardin to be miserable. They come to, to have good food and to have a good time, and that makes it interesting. For our fourth and final course, I got to ask Eric about how he finds contentment and the way he keeps himself anchored in a fast-paced world. But first, I wanted to hear more about his inspiration behind his latest cookbook, Vegetables Simple. I've read a lot about you. Your books, 32 Yolks, and, and this wonderful book, this bestseller, Vegetable Simple, which is, it's actually so simple. It's almost, I have like, I'm looking in the recipe, I'm like, that's all there is? Let me like fix that again. There's only four ingredients, and like, yes, treated with respect, four ingredients is absolutely enough if you have a really good product. And so that, that's, thank you for doing that, because it really is Vegetable Simple. You really restrain yourself. With this, no? Yeah, thank you. It, it's inspired really by uh, my lifestyle outside the restaurant and by my childhood. And when I entertain in, in Hamptons in the summer, I go to the farm stand and I get inspired by the vegetables that I see. And then I entertain and I put a lot of different dishes on the table that are very easy to make and, and that pay respect to the ingredients of great quality. And then I said, why not make a book like that? Well, it is amazing. And I, you know, I was watching your Instagram during the pandemic, but you were putting out things like ratatouille, you made like a, a mozzarella dish, and uh, it was just so inspiring to see you cook things like with such simplicity and elegance. It was like, wow. Yeah, I mean, overnight I became the private chef of the family. The restaurant was closed. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> and, and I was in charge of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and, and therefore I had to go shopping and... And then I was creating food for the family that was nutritional and well-balanced and at the same time that was delicious because I, I cannot have my family saying that my food is not delicious. So I was putting a lot of passion in it. So you've had five, I think, five or six books. You know, you've won so many accolades and you really love just doing one, one restaurant. You really love this and I so respect that about you. There's very few people that are very like just... You really love doing this thing. What is it that makes you want to say, you know what, this is great, I love this, I want to continue this, I just want to keep getting better and better because it's such a stressful environment. 
Yes, of course, it's stressful. But as, as you know, Jeffrey, we learn how to manage the stress and we learn how to strive on the stress and, and so on. For me, I came in this industry because I love eating, I love cooking, I love to be with my team, and I love to create an experience. I never came in our, in our industry because I wanted to become a mogul and I didn't think that I was coming in this industry to open 50 restaurants. Not like it's wrong. Obviously, I admire whoever has 50 restaurants and if they are happy, I'm, I'm super happy for them as well. And, and for me, it doesn't do it. It doesn't make me happy. I tried actually. And I didn't like to be in a plane. I didn't like to be in a train. I didn't like to be away from my house. I didn't like to be away from the kitchen of Le Bernardin. I didn't like to lose, not the control, but basically the influence that I have in the kitchen or in a team when I am here. I didn't like the distance and so on. So therefore I decided that Le Bernardin was sufficient. And I think I have learned over the years how to um, recognize contentment. And I am content. And when you are content, why do something else? So what, where are you moving to? What, what is your, your mental state and your spiritual state saying about where the restaurant has to go, where you have to go, and where you have to lead your team? Because you have to be going somewhere, right? You can't just stay still. Yes, especially in New York, if you stay still, everything moves forward so fast, suddenly you are going backwards. So you have to always evolve. But evolving for me, it's instinctive. It's a reaction to what's happening in fashion, to what's happening in technology, to what's happening in the world around us. And I respond to it in a creative way, in an artistic way, by changing Le Bernardin slowly but surely and changing the way... We cook the way we deliver the experience to the client by renovating the dining room. By All of that takes a lot of time. And then I have a lot of pleasure doing books. I did a bit of TV at one point and I, I loved it. It was fun. It's always something going on. I am very busy just evolving and learning and, and so on. And also I have the luck to... Um, basically divide my, my time to find balance. I dedicate a third of my time to the business and Le Bernardin and, and so on, a third of my time to my family and a third of my time for myself. And by doing that, I find balance. And I believe that if you have time for yourself, like just being selfish, you will be a better family member. Family supports you. Therefore, you will be a better boss and the team support you, and therefore you can, again, support your family better, and it's a circle, it's a cycle. And uh, all of that, it's a blessing for me to feel like that and to be able to play with an instrument, which is the restaurant, the hmm. way I want to play. It's like a, almost like a miracle. So therefore, I'm never bored. I'm always motivated. I always have projects and visions and I accomplish them. I have challenges, of course, a, a lot of it. And you can see that in my white hair, but it's fantastic. It's life. I mean, I just love the way you said that. I think honestly, some balance is hard. The recipe of balance, I tell people, is very hard. You're always putting out fires and you're always, there's three balls in the air all the time. So you really, it is juggling. But the way you put it is more spiritual than juggling. So it's sort of a spiritual juggling, you would say. But I, I really believe that when you do bring energy to your family, you have a better family. You're able to support and make your partner 
better. She can be better. Your family can be better. You, you, you got their back. And that's really what I, I hear a lot of people talking when they say, well, what's the, what's the hardest thing to do is just to really make everybody around you better. And it's probably why you're so content because you're always doing that. Yes, and, and again, it's not easy every day. Obviously, it's challenging in, in a way, right? But it's fantastic to try and to succeed and to see the results, to try to find systems for your employees, for them to have happiness and have also some balance. Because in our industry, as you know, Jeffrey, it's a lot of people who burn and they burn because they don't have that balance. So we, we have to create that to protect ourselves and to protect the people that support us and that make us successful because our families and team are our success. Without them, we are nothing, as you know. The theme for me, just listening to you, is it's extraordinary. Uh, I think that Endor, that remote little place in the south of France, and the smell of basil, I, I think it affected you deeply, and I think that you try to recreate that, and you have recreated that, and you're, you're very fortunate, but you've not gone through all the things you've gone through. So my hat's off to you, and uh, thank you so much for spending time with me uh, on Four Courses. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for having me, and take care. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian, a production of iHeartRadio and Corner Table Entertainment. Four Courses is created by Jeffrey Zakarian, Margaret Zakarian, Jared Keller, and Tara Halper. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Four Courses is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dresler. Our research is conducted by Jesslyn Shields. Our talent booking is by Pamela Bauer at Dogtown Talent. This episode was edited and written by Priya Mahadevan and mixed by Joe Tisdall. Special thanks to Katie Fellman for help as recording engineer. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.
it. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.